0: Everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Whom God Has Joined Together by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are on Chapter 15, The Thing with the Stuff in It. It was December of 1934 before we were finally able to move into Lusulin as a family. It was quite an undertaking. Almost the only vegetable that could be purchased at Pine Mountain was corn. Sometimes a salt merchant came around Rice could be bought, and chickens were frequently obtainable. We traded medicine for eggs, an egg for a pill, not evaluating the size of the pill or the age of the egg, but flour, sugar, tinned milk, tinned goods we must bring in. Clothes, bedding must be packed on horse loads, as well as kerosene for light, tools for building, books, and medicine. The money used in the canyon was silver, which weighed heavily if you were taking in enough for several months' living expenses. We would need to hire our carriers, also servants, since water had to be carried from well to house. The nearest mailbox was a day's journey away. All in all, we found ourselves with 11 pack horses. John decided that the easiest route for pack animals was via Old Nest Village, so we started out. The weather was beautiful, clear blue skies with golden sunshine, and just enough nip in the air to stimulate exercise and appetite. Since Catherine was with us, she and I rode in a sedan chair while John rode Jasper. Where it was too steep for portals to carry Baby and me together, I got off and rode the mule while John walked. It was pleasant traveling up the beautiful Macon Valley, but eventually, of course, we came to the dirtiest inn in the world. We had a merry time in that sooty farmhouse. cooped up all day in that chair, Catherine was all active as soon as we got out. She was three years old and into everything. Much could can be washed off with cold water, but not soot. To get hot water, we had to heat it in a grimy pot over an open wood fire on the floor or in the courtyard. Our patience was tried to the breaking point. We longed for nightfall in order to put Catherine to bed. We tried to get everything packed up and breakfast cooked before we woke Catherine in the morning so that she would not look like a chimney sweep by the time we started. At length, we were ready. Loads were lined up, waiting to have the horses led under them. We had finished breakfast and had saved some warm water to give Catherine a last hand wash before I put her in the chair. For myself, I despaired of ever starting out clean. The place was such a junk shop and the low-ceiling sofa student with sooty cobwebs. I only had to turn around and something was sure to brush a black mark across my cheek, skirt, or my hands. Unknown to me, John had found it as irritating as I had. He had prepared some hot water in a different room and made up his mind to have a wash just before setting out. Muleteers, chair porters, Catherine, and I were all ready to leave. But where was John? We usually had to pray together before setting out. John, I called. Hurry up. We're all waiting for you. No answer. Where could he be? I was about to call again when he emerged from the side room, beaming with amiability. See, Belle, he said, going with success and holding out two spotless palms for my admiration. At least I'm clean when I leave. What on earth? He turned over his newly washed hands, and there, behold, a black streak of soot across the back of one. He must have brushed against something as he came out the door. Would you look at that, he said, disgusted. What a place. Well, I'll... And then he began peering into this load and that one. Belle, where's that thing with the stuff in it? I stood knitting my brow, trying to think what he meant, but he interpreted my silence as non-corporative. cooperative is that thing with the stuff in it? He shot at me again. The muleteers could not understand English, but they knew something concerning the loads had displeased this sunny-tempered master, and he had a feeling it would be wise to appear industrious at that moment. So they began pulling ropes and poking at the horses with, in an anxious manner. Only I stood there, appearing idle, In reality, I was scurrying around mentally, trying to guess what John was hunting for. "'Bell,' he protested, "'why don't you help a fellow? You stand there gaping. Where's that thing with the stuff in it?' My indignation broke. I defy anyone in this universe to help you, John Coon, when you use such ambiguous language. A thing with stuff in it? Why, everywhere I look, indicating the seven horse loads, everywhere I look, there are things with stuff in it. But my retort was lost. He was half buried in the depths of one basket from which he emerged at last, smiling and calm, holding up a tube of hand cream. Don't get excited, dear, he said soothingly. I just thought this would take the soot mark off. I'm ready now. The muleteers, seeing that the sun was shining again, straightened up with relief and began to call the animals forward. And John led us in prayer for protection on the road that day. As we began to climb a particularly difficult and arduous part of the ascent, I began to picture to John the scene of the morning mimicking his question until this unreasonableness dawned upon him. He began to laugh, until he could hardly climb. It has become another one of our family jokes. In fact, for 12 years now, it has helped us over the small crisis of life when something quickly needed is difficult to lay hands on. If one of us roars, the thing with the stuff in it. Then, in the midst of laughter, a more accurate description speedily follows. Chapter 16, Furlough Without Baggage 1936. Sixteen months of happy work in Lesulian followed. These included the building of our shanty, Home of Grace. John always hoped he would not be asked to build a house on the mission field, but when it falls to his lot, he built it so strong that it stood for some 20 years until the communists tore it down. Now it was time for our first furlough. We sailed from Shanghai on the President McKinley and had the joy of fellowship with a missionary family in the cabin next to us. The wife and I had sailed to China together as single missionaries, and as true Siamers, we had prayed together daily in our cabin. On one of those occasions, we had just finished and were in the act of getting off our knees. A fellow passenger dashed in merrily down the corridor, mistook our cabin for his own, and barged in. The poor man was not only surprised, he was petrified. When he arrived so suddenly in our midst, we were neither on our knees nor yet upright. We were halfway up, groping the air. He looked as if he had thought he had landed in a cell of insane asylum, and his face so clearly revealed his thoughts that we fell back in our chairs and convulsed with laughter. In those days, ocean liners held a hard-time party once during the voyage. One day it was announced for the evening meal. The steward informed us that we would not be served unless we appeared in costume. He looked at the two CIM missionary families as he said this, possibly thinking that people who had prayer meetings every day would be too long-faced for fun-making. We did not undeceive him. It was John's costume I remember the best. He dressed as a bold pirate in sleepless waistcoat and a pair of shorts with a gay sash around the middle. Into this was stuck a hunting knife. The red bandana tied around his head was splashed with mercurochrome, and he blackened hollows underneath his eyes with burnt cork. The cork also produced streaks of soot on his cheeks and shoulders and legs. The mercurochrome supplied more gory-looking gashes from the neck and limbs. Under the bandana, his hair was combed down over his eyes. Being big, muscular, and hairy, he was a fearsome sight. I pulled my hair back tight from my face and did it up in a teapot handle, an imitation of Maggie Jiggs. With long skirts to the floor, I looked the part. We sailed together into the dining room, a trifle late, solemnly faced the steward. He had prided himself on being able to identify everybody. But as we stood there, John scowling in good pirate fashion, and I looked down the length of my nose at him, the steward was dumbfounded. Giggles came from those already seated. He looked around to see who was yet missing to help him catch a clue. But several seats were vacant. He could not guess our identity for the life of him. Finally, he had to ask who we were. As we passed between tables, one of the men called out, You take first prize, sir, when it got noised about that the ferocious pirate was the supposedly long-faced missionary. One of the other male guests got up and came to John. Congratulations, he said. You're a good sport. If the rest of the evening had been games and good fun, it would have been a happy evening. But when dinner was over, drinking began. That soon drove us to our cabin, so we were not present when the prizes were awarded. Our ship did not dock at Vancouver, where my father and brother lived. The destination was Seattle. We had to disembark at Victoria and take a coastal streamer from there to Vancouver. John was given baggage tickets to see to the transfer of our luggage from one ship to the other. We were not prepared, however, for the wonderful reception that the mission friends in Victoria gave us. Since the local boat did not leave immediately, they had planned a trip for us to the Buchanan Sunken Gardens. Just to see homeland shores was thrilling enough, but the excitement of meeting everyone eclipsed everything else. It was only after the ship to Vancouver was actually pulling out of Victoria Harbor that John suddenly clapped his hands over his pocket, With chagrin, he pulled out the baggage tickets and held them up to me. Belle, look, I completely forgot about them. Oh, John, that meant we had nothing but what we had on, not even an overnight case. A hasty interview with the purser brought comfort. We could wire for our things to be forwarded to us on the next ship. That night, amid much laughter, our friends brought us nightclothes to sleep in. The arrival of Vancouver was memorable. My father and brother were at the dock, of course but somehow I had not expected so many of my girlfriends also there. There there they were. It was exciting to lead John up to them and make them guess which my previous description's who was who. He did not make any mistakes. Catherine monopolized Grandpa. We had carefully built up a story about him telling of the peppermint candy that always hid in his pockets and so on. We hoped she would not be strange with him, and she wasn't. In fact, she clung to him so that he could go nowhere without her. When bedtime came, Catherine calmly announced that she was going to sleep with Grandpa. On his side, he would refuse her nothing. We dubiously wished him a good night with his sidekick. That bedroom was across a short hall from ours, and the next morning, early, before everyone was out of bed, we overheard the following conversation. Grandpa, where are you going to have breakfast? Catherine, I don't know, but I'm going to put candy in my breakfast to make it taste good. You have big ears. Grandpa, well, isn't that wonderful? Haven't you big ears? Catherine, oh no, I have little ears. But when I grow up, I will have big ears, bigger than yours. Grandpa coughed. Catherine, when you cough, you should cover your mouth with your hand like this, or it might get on me. And so began Grandpa's education. A few days later, our trunks appeared, all the way from La to Vancouver. We had experienced the covering of his hand, keeping bad things from getting on his children. Chapter 17, Working the Thing That is Good we were in Vancouver for about three weeks and then crossed into the United States to attend the first Bible and missionary conference in Bellingham, Washington. This was the conference where I first offered my life for foreign mission service, and I wanted my friends there to get to know John. This year, the chief speakers were Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, Mr. L.M. Maxwell of Prairie Bible Institute, Dr. John G. Mitchell, and Miss Frances Brook. All four left a permanent imprint on our lives. Among these dear saints of the Lord who attended the conference were Mr. and Mrs. Eastman. They lived on Orcas Island in Puget Sound, a favorite summer resort. There they had also built a few summer cottages as an investment. One of these they had dedicated to the Lord to be loaned to missionaries who needed rest. When they offered it to us, urging us to come at the end of the conference, we promised to pray about it. I was still underweight due to the hard bout of sickness before furlough. I was also highly strung and worn out after eight years of service on the field. I needed to quietly get away from even the dear excitement of visiting friends. John, who takes life more calmly, was in no such need. He liked to be on the go, loved to visit, did not require a full night's sleep, and would even lengthen the day until midnight. Yet we did not like to separate, and that was not any fun either. It was obvious that I must go where I could sleep and relax. So that August saw us established as a couple of rooms over the garage in Orcas Island, a nearby cabin in the woods housed Grandpa Miller, who could not bear to be parted from us. It proved to be a beautiful little island with a permanent farming community. In fact, right behind us was a small farm where a middle-aged couple had built a two-room cabin. As a sale of the produce from their farm brought in sufficient money, they were adding a third room about the time of our arrival. I was ordered to sleep late every morning to try to build up physically, but healthy John found time hanging heavily on his hands. Grandpa liked to fish, but that did not solve John's need for exercise. Finally, one morning, he announced, there's an old man next door roofing a side wing of his cabin. He seems to be all alone, and I wonder if he wouldn't like help. I'm going to offer. I just must get some physical work or I'll get fat and lazy. Come on, Grandpa, you're good for a few shingles and nails, aren't you? Grandpa, who thought the world of his son-in-law, would not deny it. That morning we saw the short, fat figure and the tall, muscular one approach the new wing where our neighbors were perched on the rafters, nails in his mouth, shingles and hammer in his hand. Hi there, John called out. Want any help? We're glad to come up and assist you. The farmer, known as Grandpa Loomis, peered over the edge and looked down at the smiling young man. Uh, uh, oh, he began in embarrassment. We're just building ourselves— we just, It doesn't matter if it goes slow. I just do a little each day as I can. And it was Grandpa Miller who caught on first. Well, we don't want wages, he called back. Son here has nothing to do and wants some exercise, that's all. Grandpa Loomis could not believe his ears. A labor without wages? That was worth investigating. Just a moment, he called. I'm coming down. I don't hear too good anymore. A few seconds later, around the corner of the wooden shell, he appeared. Come on in and have a cup of coffee, he said. "'Ushering him into the two-room shanty "'where a portly figure in a big kitchen apron "'eyed them with astonishment. "'This is Grandma Loomis,' he said, "'introducing her carelessly. "'Get us some coffee, old girl, will you? "'These are the missionaries, our new neighbors. "'What did you say your name was?' "'Mine is John Coon,' said the young stalwart. "'And this is my wife's father. "'We call him Grandpa Miller. "'Glad to meet you, Mrs. Loomis. "'We were wondering if your husband "'would let us help him nail on that roof. "'You see, I need exercise.' "'I feel myself getting flabby, doing nothing. "'We don't want money for it, "'just the privilege of getting fresh air and activity.' "'It was now Mrs. Loomis' turn to be astonished. "'Her husband, who now realized he had heard correctly, beamed. "'It sure would go faster, Ina,' he said eagerly, "'and maybe I'd be able to get some boarding up.' "'Well, take that as a mighty kind,' said dear Grandma Loomis. "'You ought to be told that it's pretty hot up there on that roof.' "'Oh, that's okay,' John said. "'A good sweat is healthy. "'How about getting to work now?' Can you find an extra hammer, do you think? So it came about that lying on my bed in the flat, I would hear, along with a call of seabirds, the rat-tat-tat of two or three hammers on the Loomis roof behind us. Five-year-old Catherine was, of course, with the working contingent. She played house with the broken shingles and wandered with Grandma Loomis through her garden, her vegetable garden, with content. The old couple was simply thrilled with their wageless laborers They kept up a steady stream of guests from the garden. Squash, beans, cucumbers, whatever they had, found its way to our kitchen. More than that, when John went to the corner grocery to buy some coffee, the proprietor beamed at him. Aren't you the missionaries working for Grandpa Loomis? We hear you're going to preach for Mr. Eastman Sunday night. Well, we're coming. Guess you'll have a pretty good crowd. Your reputation has sort of got around the island. A missionary working like that and for nothing? You know, everyone is talking about it. So the heart of the island opened to us. We were invited to this farmstead and that, and we formed friendships that lasted for years. In fact, I believe that on Orcas Island, there are some who still pray for the Coon family and the Sioux tribe. Once again, we found the Lord's way is the happy way. John's surrender for my sake was blessed and brought joy and happiness to many more besides himself. Chapter 18, Hometown With strength, we left the Pacific Northwest for a visit to Daddy's hometown, Macomb, Pennsylvania. After the train sped across the 3,000 intervening miles, we finally saw the rolling farmlands that gave us a signal that we were nearing our station, Lancaster. We all got excited. It had been 10 years since John had sailed from China, and this was his first return home. Although I had visited his sister at one time, this was my first visit as a member of the family. Who would be at the station to meet us? John's parents were both dead, but he had two half-brothers, Bill and Jim, who still lived with Auntie Annie and Uncle Anton. Then it was John's spiritual mother, Mrs. John Creddy. John's own mother had died when he was three years old, and dear Mrs. Creddy had taken him on her heart to pray him into the kingdom. Later, she stood behind him in prayer as he went down to God's front line of battle in China. Already, Mother Creddy's letters and spiritual premonitions of our needs had been a great impression on me. Would she be at the station? I was also most anxious to meet a certain young bookkeeper named Mary Zimmerman. While we were still in China, I had felt I should write once a month to people who really prayed for the work, but it would cost too much to post a monthly letter to many people directly from China. So I prayed, Lord, if you want this letter multiplied, you will have to find a way. About six months or a year later, a request came from Mary, whom I had never heard of before. She asked permission to duplicate our monthly prayer letters and to include them in a little periodical she compiled each month. It was called the Triangle. At that time, it only went out to about a 100 people, but still that meant 100 to pray for Les Sue. I was very grateful. Would Mary be at the station to meet us? There were others, too, of whom John had spoken often and whose faces I had seen only in snapshots. Would I recognize them? The train was pulling to a stop. We must not forget our baggage a second time. In another minute, we were on the platform, surrounded by people. I could hear John's voice joyously naming them, Auntie Annie, Brother Bill, Brother Jim, Mother And Almost immediately, a plump young woman in a -a Mennonite cap edged forward. I'm Mary Zimmerman, she said. Could you speak for me at the meeting on the 18th? I gasped how often I chuckled over that first meeting with Mary. She had only her noon hour for time off, of course, and she had the remarkable ability to make every moment count. An ability which has enabled her to do the work of several people. She wanted me to speak to her prayer group, knowing it would do so much for me as well as for them. The Lancaster Prayer Group has been our family name for them for years, and what they contribute to the progress of the work in their quiet, hidden ministries we do not yet fully know. My head was going round with all the excitement. Why, yes, I'm glad to speak, I managed to reply. Good, I'll leave you the details and arrange the transportation for you later, she added, with that perfect attention to business detail which blesses her friends. It was also my introduction to the quaint Pennsylvania Dutch way of putting things. Their dialect has simply translated German idioms into English. For example, walk the street down and turn the corner up. It was just a part of my introduction to John's hometown. Finally, we were escorted into Brother Bill's car and whirled off to Mayhem. Lancaster County, with its green hills and beautiful kept farmhouses and barns, is one of the most lush spots of America. John was thrilled. Looking from one side to the other, recognizing landmarks, he chatted with the relatives, sometimes trying to point out places to me. As the car curved to the left, John called out Mayhem Park Bell, That's where we went on picnics, and I caught a fleeting glimpse of a little wooded dell with swings and slides for children and picnic tables under the trees. Then we were in the town itself. I had been brought up in the wide open spaces of western lands, and my first impression of the houses opening right off the streets and closely packed together. In the west, almost everyone had a front yard, a backyard, side yards. Each home was a unit by itself, but here they were built two together like Siamese twins. To have the doorsteps open right onto the street gave me the quaint feeling of being in a medieval Germany. Everything was otherworldish and the sight of the people on the street, and Mennonite costume increased the impression that I had walked into the pages of a storybook. The car drove up to one of the double houses, and Auntie Ann called out that we were home. Everything was immaculately clean. Annie and Anton, as their nephews called them, had no children, and were they of the indeflatable, industrious type. We were soon called down to supper, and I was introduced to the Pennsylvania Dutch hospitality. For example, there were three or four different kinds of pie on the table at the same time. In my innocence, I offered to help with the housework. I was dubiously given the hanging of the laundry. I had no more than a line full up when one of the family members asked, horrified, Isabel, did nobody ever teach you how to hang up clothes Quickly, they hauled off everything I had hung up, lest the neighbors discover that John's wife did not know any better than that. No, no one had ever taught me that there was an Emily Post set of rules for hanging up clothes. I had to learn from the bottom up. John's wife might do as a public speaker or even a missionary author, but as far as the practical things of life were concerned, well, it's easy to see that I was not brought up in mayhem. But on the whole, they were very indulgent with me. Mayhem was then a town of about 4,000 inhabitants. The Coon Homestead, John's birthplace, now belonged to an older brother of John's father, who went around to see it and to inspect the old swimming hole at the end of the street. From there, we went to Hershey Machine and Foundry Company, where John had worked for a year to earn money to start studies at Moody Bible Institute. And then off we went to see the school John had attended. And from there, down Main Street, dropping in at the drugstore so I could meet some distant relatives, and then mr harry rule who ran rule's drug store were fine christian people many a present of medicine for the laysu found its way to china from these dear ones laysu over many miles of hills came to know and asked for the help of a certain pink pill which they declared was second to none in curing stomach-ache on down main street was the corner of the square here is where everybody comes on saturday night john explained People drive in from the country to do their shopping, and everywhere there's lively chatter and life bubbling with interest. Catherine and I used to hold open-air services here when we were home from Moody. I preached many a time at that corner there. Near the square was the home of a fine Christian businessman who helped John first at Moody Bible Institute and then in China. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and his keen business mind was used in his Christian living and giving until his home call. It was a privilege to discuss problems with him and watch the sanctified common sense come into action. Then there was one more place on the town square which demanded a visit from us, the bank. In it was deposited the cash legacy which came to John on his father's death. It was a nice little nest egg. We had recently been reading C.T. Studd's life, and it had made a real impression on us. Studd had given away his entire fortune. John was for doing the same but felt we should be careful not to rush into such action. I reminded John of the need of my father, an earnest Christian and a deacon in the church who had no compunctions about going into debt. He would even run up a charge account when he did not have sufficient income to pay for it. He was always optimistically expecting something to turn up. To my dear husband's credit, in accord with the challenge of 1 Timothy 5.8, the first checks John on his legacy wiped out my father's debt. It amounted to nearly $5,000. The remainder we offered to the Lord on our knees. We rose expecting him to tell us where it should be given. It was a thrilling, sweet adventure to watch his finger pointing. One hundred was given to an earnest young missionary working on the border of Russia. Another hundred helped an outfit a new worker for Africa. Other gifts enabled a fine Christian girl to finish a Prairie Bible Institute, sent a missionary to South America, enabled a mayhem girl to go to Moody Bible Institute. This last young woman from John's own hometown met and married a keen soul winner in MBI, and together they've been shining lights for the Lord in Central America for many years. As for us, we lacked nothing. We were without a car, so friends offered to help, so we never lacked transportation. Speaking engagements piled up, and a generous friend provided my platform clothes. Others cared for John, and still others sent Catherine to kindergarten. These provisions were all the most astounding because everyone in Mayhem must have heard the amount Father Coon had left to his children. We told no one what God did with his share, not even his brothers and sisters, so our friends could not have thought we were financially pinched. It was the Lord who prompted them to care for our needs, as he had prompted us to meet the needs of his other children in other parts of the world. God is no man's debtor, said one of Hudson Taylor's friends to him, and we have proved it true. As I sit back and view that small town community removed by space and over a period of some 30 years, the inheritance of the saints is the most outstanding impression of that addition to my life. Gradually, I've come to see that with my husband, I gained a rich portion of the great inheritance of the saints. Next time, we'll finish the book with chapter 19, The Ticklish Question, and then another section, which is called What Happened After. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye bye for now.